There is finally no rest without faith. There is finally no rest without faith. There is finally no rest without faith. I'm channeling the voice of Josh McDowell a little bit, author and apologist from years ago. He came to Biola, where I work, one year to give the commencement address years ago. And uh, he was introduced. He got up. He thanked those who welcomed him or made it possible, the president and others. He greeted the graduates and their families. And then he said this, never stop loving your spouse. Never stop loving your spouse. Never stop loving your spouse. And then he sat down. This was a little odd. For one, because almost none of the graduates, undergraduates graduating that day were married. And second, because usually commencement's addresses have a little more to them. On the other hand, it's the only commencement address, and I've heard 50 of them, that I remember word for word. <laughs> so clearly there's some merit in that. As Lisa Igram said on her, uh, in her introductions this summer, we are focusing on three rhythms, rest, resting, reflecting, and redirecting. And today we come back around to rest. And I'm thinking maybe I should have just said that three times. There is finally no rest without faith and sat down. Uh, and I'm sure many of you would have been pleased with that. But there's a little more to it. And so I'm going to talk a little bit further about rest. Jesus, in this passage in Matthew 6, addresses the disciples as those of little faith. And if rest relies on faith, then those of little faith struggle to find rest. I think many of us are people of little faith often. In fact, the actual words in the, in the passage there is simply just a title for them. Little faithers is what it literally says. Little faithers. It's like being at camp and putting into the group of little faithers. But the little faithers please line up here. Thank you very much. Little faithers. And so finally, if we're going to talk about rest, we're going to have to talk about faith. And I think one of the places to begin in the passages we've been given is perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. It is Psalm 91. So if you look at it in your bulletin, it was the first passage read during our readings. And one can almost do no better than the very first verse of Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And then the psalmist goes on in the second verse, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Dwelling in the shelter, resting in the shadow. In some ways, that's all we need to know. The word rest here, of course, is bookended by these two images, the image of shelter and the image of shadow. Shadow in the scriptures is never sinister, like it sometimes is in our literature or film. In the Middle East, of course, coolness and shade was critical. It was a kind of protection from the relentlessness of the Middle Eastern heat, a shadow, a shade. But notice here, it's not just any shadow, it's the shade that a person provides, someone larger than us who casts a larger shadow, in this case, the Almighty. 
I'm pretty sure one of my daughters, when it came down to selecting two universities, said that she chose, she eliminated one because there were fewer trees for shade. <laughs> so shadow and shade and rest seem to go together in this passage. The way I would put it is that rest, this shade, this shadow, is the strengthening presence of God. Rest ultimately cannot be found unless we have faith in the strengthening presence of God. The other image is shelter, a place of protection. In the next verse, it's called a refuge or a fortress. In the Joshua passage, it's called the land. And in the Matthew passage, it's called the kingdom of God. It's like a house, a home really, some place to dwell brings rest. But a dwelling that provides for our needs and is a place of welcome, acceptance, connection, belonging, even beauty, like a well-run home. It is a way of life that is beautiful, this shelter. So we learn in just this one verse that if we are to seek rest, it's going to have to come by entering into the shadow or strengthening presence of God and into the shelter, the way of life that we long for. And in the second verse, the psalmist just calls it trust. He just calls it trust. And so for those of us for whom faith is kind of a vague and abstract word, trust will do. In fact, any place that you read the word faith in the Bible, you can really just substitute the word trust. Right? For by grace you have been saved through trust, for those who memorize that verse. Or Paul says the three greatest virtues are trust, hope, and love. Dallas Willard says to have faith in, to have faith in God is simply to trust him, to rely on him in the face of all fears, anxieties, and uncertainties, to rely on his strengthening presence, and the shelter he provides in the kingdom of God. You know, in reading this this week, and by the way, as a teacher, I should tell you what a blessing it is to prepare to teach because these passages are ones that I needed to hear. And it's nice to know that our modern pursuit of rest, almost everyone I know wants rest. You ask them, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. They're seeking rest. It's nice to know that our modern pursuit of rest is not some kind of modern therapeutic first world desire that we're imposing on Scripture. It's something we see clearly across the Scriptures that God desires us to experience. I'm reminded of Jesus' invitation right in Matthew 11. Come to me, who all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or Paul's version, who says he has learned to be content in little and in much, a synonym of rest. And of course, the Philippians passage 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplications, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving and the peace of God, another synonym for rest, the incomprehensible peace of God will come and rest upon you. So the question is, of course, this morning, how do we enter into this rest? 
So we all intuitively know what rest is not, right? Uh, And even these passages remind us of what there is to be restless about. In the two Old Testament passages, the Psalm and Joshua, they just give us a list. It's fear, pestilence or plague, violence, disasters, accidents, fear of enemies, those who stand against us. I mean, this is virtually the televised run sheet of the evening news, right? Always starts with a natural disaster, followed by an international threat, followed by a health scare, and then a two-second commercial on some kind of male dysfunction that's supposed to make us all feel better and give us hope, or at least half of us. The point is that we, too, experience all these fears, these things that might happen because fear sells, right? So we get a lot of it. If you want to raise money, raise fears. So no wonder we're fearful. No wonder we're anxious. In the Matthew passage, Jesus identifies the close cousin of fear, which is worry that steals our rest. Worry is what we do with our fear and anxiety. It's a kind of magical thinking, if you've ever thought about worry. Worry says, if I stare at this thing long enough, it won't come near me. For those of you watching, you know, Stranger Things, it's L kind of going like this. For those of you not, just forget it. We think if we just fix on something and we just keep looking at it and staring at it, it won't come any nearer to us. It is a kind of magical thinking, of course, because that's not the way it really works. I will confess to you, I am by nature a worrier of sorts, really more accurately a ruminator, a kind of nocturnal Rubik's cuber. And this has historically made it hard for me to fall asleep at night. My family could tell you some ambient stories of which I am not proud More comical than incriminating, but I forbid them to tell the stories. But this worry, this kind of magical thinking, this staring at something, it drains us. It makes us restless, and it causes us to have little space for others. So for we who are natural and inveterate worriers, which is all of us, right, where is rest found? Well, It won't be found, finally, just by getting away, or if you want to spiritualize that, by going on retreat, or by getting a massage, or by any other things that we think of when we think of taking a day of rest, although these can be relaxing, and they can be places where we do meet God. The problem is we can't do those things often enough, and they don't go deep enough to deal with the things that worry us. No, rest is going to have to be found in the midst of our daily lives. And it'll be, as I said, in two ways. We must enter into the strengthening presence of God and in the dwelling that is the kingdom of God, which is the good life. So let's start with the first one. How do we enter into strengthening presence of God? Well, have you ever had an experience in your past of being lost as a child somewhere? I did. I was at Disneyland. I was probably six. And I got separated from my parents on Main Street. And if you remember Main Street, it can be packed with people during certain seasons. And if you're, you know, four feet tall, three feet tall, all you see are waistlines. Um, And so I was separated from them. And in that moment that I realized it, there was disorientation, panic, a sense of danger, certainly fear. Now, I was at Disneyland, mind you, the happiest place on earth, but that no longer mattered at this moment. The only thing that would free me from fear and anxiety 
would be to see my parents' presence again. And I'm sure if you could see my face when they walked into City Hall, where I was temporarily placed, you would see great relief come into my face, the strengthening presence of my parents. That's why I think many of us fear losing our parents. Ideally, and I know it hasn't always been ideal, ideally they represent God in our upbringing as a strengthening presence. And indeed, as we mature, part of our calling is to add to the strengthening presence of our parents the strengthening presence of God who is our Abba. So that transition might not be so difficult as it might be otherwise. Of course, the analogy, the Disneyland lost strengthening presence of parents analogy kind of breaks down because, well, God is invisible. We can't see him. There won't necessarily be that moment of seeing for most of us. Ah, but there still can be moments of meeting. There still can be moments of meeting. See, as Christians, you and I live in a very large world. There is, of course, the world we see, But there's a world we don't see, but is nevertheless real and present. It's that world that's referred to when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Heaven is not somewhere else. It is the fuller world that is right here. It's not the material world, but the invisible real world of God's heaven. Heaven is every place you can't see. It is as close as my cheek and as high, of course, as the heavens. It is the place where angels dwell and, yes, demons dwell and where the Holy Spirit dwells. Holy Spirit is actually in this room right now. This room is filled with the heavens. The scriptures do acknowledge this difficulty, the invisibility of God. Paul in Romans writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power, this is the almighty shadow, and his divine nature, his beneficence, his generosity, his love, have been clearly seen from what has been made. So the people are without excuse. So even these qualities are invisible, still can be kind of almost sensed through the grandeur and beauty of the world. But of course, God has been seen. For Jesus says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus tells his disciples, the little faithers, how can you say, show us the invisible Father? He says, you're looking at God now. You're looking at God now. The editor of my Bible gives that section the heading, Jesus comforts his disciples. For indeed, he was about to go away. He was about to become invisible. And his work in the upper room that evening is to convince them that his presence will remain. He will send the Holy Spirit, that it will be good for him to go, because now the Holy Spirit will be even closer. God will be even more present through the Holy Spirit, and that he will send such a person. So what is faith or trust that brings rest? It is to come to really know who God is and to really believe that he is a strengthening presence. He is the good father. He is loving, beneficent, generous. He is good. And to believe that we are valuable to him. 
that he wants to save us, as Psalm 91 says. He wants to show us his salvation. Or as Jesus says, he knows your needs. Aren't you way more valuable than the lilies and the birds of the air? Jesus says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? And of course, we get the image of the shepherd in Psalm 23 for God's strengthening presence. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of death, we will fear no evil. For those of you reading Dallas Willard's book, Life Without Lack, and I encourage you strongly to do so. He looks at all the passages of God's strengthening presence, including when Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus about the opposition in Ephesus that Paul experienced. And he says, Alexander the metalworker, <laughs> I love this. This is when you realize that there's real context, you know. It's like, Alexander the metalworker did a great deal of harm to me. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At first, at my first defense, no one came to support me. Paul was lost in Disneyland. No one came to support me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, Paul says. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. He's not somewhere up in the heavens. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. For us to find rest, this trust will not have to be just when we are at the end of our rope, but will have to be a daily experience of God standing by our side and giving us strength. Our rest will grow at the speed of trust. Our rest will grow at the speed of trust. And so to rest is to essentially float in the larger pool of God's strengthening presence, to go to him early and often. I'm a feeler. I'm an Enneagram 4, if that makes sense to anyone. It means I feel a range of things all day long. Breakfast, I can be hopeful and optimistic. After a 10 a.m. mean, I can be angry and resentful. At lunchtime, I can perk up because I'm eating. And so it goes all day long, the roller coaster of the Enneagram. Four, feeling all sorts of feelings all day long. Emotional dysregulation, it's called. But I am learning to trust God now, often and early, to wake up and greet the Trinity. Good morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To sit on my back porch with coffee and thank God for our home and the magic of my new vegetable garden. We'll talk later. To know his presence in that 10 a.m. meeting to put him in one of those empty chairs and let my frustration be regulated by his strengthening presence. The one that says, I don't always have to have my way, and these other people at the table actually might have some wisdom. I'm learning to cast my cares upon him throughout the day, as we're told in scriptures, in conversational prayer, not throwing up prayers like arrows that somehow have to penetrate the clouds to reach him, but actually turning to the Holy Spirit who's right there next to me. And let me remind you, this is no sentimental vision. This is the truth. And we have to come to believe absolutely that God says who he says he is, that the Holy Spirit is where he says he is, that Jesus is the shepherd of our lives as he says he is. So there's finally no rest without trust in the strengthening presence of God.
But what about the other metaphor of shelter? Because this too is a kind of rest, a dwelling place. In Matthew 6, Jesus addresses our particular anxieties about lack. You worry about clothes, you worry about food. Essentially, he's saying one of the things that steals your rest is the, you worry that you will not get the good things in life that you want. Now, you and I are seekers of the good. We are designed to be that way. That's normal. We are designed to seek the good life. We are designed to get up in the morning and tilt toward the good things that we love. It's always as if we are walking tilted a little bit forward, as it should be, towards seeking the good. All of us have a vision of the good life. It may not always be right. It may not always end up being good. But all of us are driven by some vision of the good life. I'll confess that my vision of the good life is often not good. My vision of the good life lately has been one in which no one bothers me about anything. (laughs) That is my vision of the good life. And that needs to be recalibrated. In this passage, Jesus picks out, of course, food and clothing, which are pretty basic and reasonable goods that his community sought. These are good goods, we'd call them. Surely these are good goods. Goods that we know are good. There are others that we know are good. Health, friendship, work that gives us a modem of security, beauty, affection. These things secure and fill us. These are good goods. Over time, though, I think for sure, now through an industrial economy and into a digital one, an information age, our needs and our notions of the good life have expanded. And I don't mean to denigrate them because I enjoy many of them. The good life now involves, of course, being widely known and seen, acquiring certain products that are ever more promising, exciting, and convenient, um, entertainment at my fingertips, work that is not hard and but always more meaningful, a personality or appearance that is attractive, harder to seek these days, and of course, more security or insurance than could ever be afforded any time in history, and the list goes on. The problem is that the more goods we seek, and think we need, the anxiety that we may not get them accumulates. It seems in any given week, my rest or or, um, contentment is is, uh, disrupted by slow internet or streaming connections, an appliance that is no longer working, a car that needs repair, a package that did not arrive or is delayed, something among the hundreds of things I own that I cannot find, an electronic payment that didn't go through or one that I didn't receive, a phone or computer that runs out of juice at the wrong time, a GPS that misdirects. Some days I feel like I live in a state of constant irritation. And that's just the little stuff. Surprisingly, Jesus tells his friends that even food or clothing are things we shouldn't worry about, never mind those things. So what do we do with our worry? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and you'll find what you need. You know, that sounds pretty vague and mystical. (laughs) But he's actually pointing us to something very concrete and practical. The way Joshua 1 puts it in our passages, he says, Be careful to obey all the laws my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. So the law or the commands in the Old Testament were rightly understood not just as arbitrary commands by some distance God, but a vision of the good life. The law was a vision of the good life. Jesus revisits that law right in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says basically, okay, imagine this kind of life. Imagine this community, this kind of village, a city where the highest goods were available to the weakest, the meek or the poor, where they were given a place at the table. Or imagine a place where conflict would not lead to violence, but forgiveness and reconciliation. Or where there were constant um, examples of generosity, where people would go two miles with each other rather than one. 
or where the conversation in boardrooms or living rooms was about the wise thing to do rather than just the most profitable, where it was common to see people praying together and for one another, where there was joy and freedom from fear and anxiety, and where there was mourning or grieving, it was as those who have hope. He says, imagine that. Isn't that good? Isn't that beautiful? And so when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, he's saying, you know, you have even deeper needs than your material needs. You have needs for wisdom and beauty and love. He says, aim high at those. These are actually available to you. And he says, everything else will be taken care of. Let the Amazon package get stuck in some post office in Aliso Viejo. I really don't care because I have forgiveness and the presence of God and people of faith who love me and are praying for me. The kingdom of God brings rest. Living in the kingdom of God now, part of the invisible but real, brings rest. I know these things are easy to say. They're very nearly cliches. So in the end, they have to be tested to be believed. Rest moves at the speed of trust. G.K. Chesterton is famous for saying, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, but that it really hasn't been tried at all. So how is rest in the kingdom of God found? Well, it's dwelling on what is true, good, and beautiful. In Philippians, Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, think about these things. Dwell in that world. It doesn't mean we deny the the problems of the world. It means look at the full world, the true world, the visible and the invisible, and put it into practice, he says. Because rest moves at the speed of trust. And the God of peace, he says, will be with you. Joshua says, keep the book of the law, that is the scriptures, on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do everything in it. And with the word meditate, Joshua kind of brings us into the world that in which trust is a kind of tasting. Trust is a kind of tasting something to believe it. It has to be tasted to believe. You know, I think humans, we can pretty much develop a taste for anything if we have to, right? I remember I was a summer in Greece. I was there and I was doing some archaeology and, and there was only one taverna that served meals for 20 of us and there was no menu. I mean, you ate what they gave you. And they only had one kind of wine I think this is okay to say in Anglican church, right? I don't know elsewhere, but Anglican church people, oh yeah, okay, that's good. Um, they only kind of had one kind of wine, and it was, it was Greek wine called retsina. And it was called retsina because it was aged in barrels that had a little resin in them. And so it tasted a little bit like resin. Okay, this was definitely an acquired taste. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon, I got nostalgic last night. I bought some retsina wine, had some last night, and I still love it. I give it to other people, and they vomit. It was an acquired, you could get used to anything. They got me eating fish eyes. Yeah. It's like, wow, okay, this is pretty good. Has like a hard center, you gotta spit out, but still. (laughs) The idea though is to have our taste formed by those things that give us rest. To have our taste formed by those things. In fact, the word meditate actually is an oral, A-U-R-A-L, a metaphor of hearing. 
The word meditate comes from that sound a pigeon, same root word as that sound a pigeon makes, that cooing, that internal thing that's going on inside, that cooing. And it's also the same word in the scriptures that's used for a kind of lion chewing its prey, kind of, you know, kind of, that's the word for meditate, to kind of focus and chew on something. I mean, my dog does this. We have a, we have a, a chew toy, it's right here, Bun Bun. Bun Bun is by far the sturdiest and most long-suffering chew toy we have had. Um, and, and, and Winston just, after a th- few throws, he just brings it back to the um, sofa and he just puts his mouth over Bun Bun and he just holds Bun Bun. And if you look really closely, he just goes like this. We call it Bun Bun Meditation. <laughs> he is tasting Bun Bun. He is dwelling on Bun Bun. You can see the ears, right, have, are worn with meditation. Scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we taste and see that the Lord is good? How do we trust it leads to rest? I'm going to give you a few suggestions. One is to constantly take advantage of the strengthening presence of God. To grow in our knowledge of who God is, who Jesus is, but not just to grow in our knowledge, but actually to turn to him and to rest in the shadow of his presence, to have conversations with him, to turn to him immediately in times of difficulty, to taste his presence. Still, the best way I find of doing this is through the practice of examine in the evenings, where for 10 minutes, I sit down, and for five of those minutes, I go through the day, and I thank the Lord for the good things I've experienced. And then for five of the minutes, I ask the Lord for my needs, but also I confess to him my sin, ways I've not lived in the kingdom of God and the ways that I wish to. It is turning to God early and often, not as if he is out there, but as if he is right here. Secondly is to seek life in the kingdom, to put it into practice, to see if it really does bring rest, to do the right thing, to experience the moral beauty of the kingdom of God, to see if that brings rest. This week I was dealing with a landlord who was not, who was difficult, and after, you know, getting kind of absorbed into this conflict, I finally just said, you know, let's just meet together and talk this through face to face. That, for me, was a kingdom of God move, at least insofar as it depended on me. So seek life in the kingdom. Put it into practice. See if it can be a shelter that brings rest. And if neither of those things are working at the moment, that you can't feel God's presence or you can't seem to find his kingdom, lament. Lament. Say, Lord, where are you? Because that is still an act of faith. (laughs) See, babies stop crying out when they think no one is now going to come. That's when they stop crying. They have lost faith. Lament. Uh, You know, I I thought, I'm going to preach on this. I better practice it. So this week, I took something that was bugging me, and I just lamented. I said, Lord, ugh, why are you letting me experience this? Why are you doing that? What's going on? Where are you? What's the answer here? And you know, I did that for like 15, 20 minutes. And you know, it helped. <laughs> it helped because I, I actually, since he... He was there. in the ba- I was in the backyard. He was on the grass. He wasn't right here, but somehow he's on the grass. He was listening. So lament. And finally, I will say, 
pursue rest with others. I am so moved by, in Mark 2, 1 to 12, you know the story where the guy who is lame is, they can't get to Jesus, so they climb on top of the house, they remove the towels, and they lower him down to Jesus. (laughs) Crazy. Those were friends of faith. If we can just get him in the presence of Jesus, maybe he was a little faither and needed big faithers. If we can just drop him into the presence of Jesus, we need people around us to help us. So my encouragement with you as you seek rest is to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty and in the shelter that he provides in the kingdom of God. Because faith ultimately brings rest. And we find it now, today, by trust. Amen.